2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. Are we starting the podcast now? Or? Oh, we've been on the podcast, my brother. <laughs> Yo. Man alive. Welcome to the Death Alive podcast. My name is Richard Young, and I am recording this. Man, I'm in, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I have been in Portland, Oregon for the last... I think this is like 15 days and I have, I did not originally plan to be in Portland, Oregon for this amount of time, but alas, here I am, uh, probably going to be here for a few more days, but I've been able to record a few podcasts. I don't know in which order they're coming up, but I know the one that you are about to hear right now is, is crazy. And um, it's with my guy, uh, Raul Barasa, a.k.a. Chico. And uh, if you've seen Chico on uh, I'm Listening with Justin Koo, or, uh, man, seen him from uh, on the internet, his story, like, I... I had not heard his whole story. I'd seen his baptism and all this stuff, but I didn't know the backstory. And it seems like everybody did had heard it before. And and maybe you'll be able to tell that I I had I don't know the whole story when when you hear how I like the questions and stuff that I ask him. But this this interview like had me shook, and um, I want to catch up with him sometime before I leave to get the rest of it. But, yo, this thing is crazy. It's nuts. Um, and it's just a huge just testimony. Um, so I'm super excited for you to hear it. And, um, nah, I, I mean, there's a bunch of announcements I guess I could make, but lovereality.org. Um, Check that out. Um, all of our stuff is up there for free. You don't even have to give your email. You can just get it. 
we we giving it away. Uh, so come check us out there. Um, but let's let's just jump into this mug because it's it's my longest one I've had yet, and there's still a lot more to go with this with this story. So yeah, love y'all. Uh, appreciate y'all. Let's strap in and buckle up. It's the podcast. Yo, Richard, are you about to do the podcast? So this is the Death of Life podcast, and if you hear like an echo, I don't care because we are on location in on the scene, on right. the scene in Portland, Oregon, at Chico's Barbershop. It's actually Vancouver, Washington. Oh, mercy! It's so mercy. close. Yeah, it's so close that uh, people don't really they get when you say you're from Vancouver, they think that you're talking about Canada, right? But no, it's Vancouver, Washington at Cha- uh, Chico's Classic Barbershop. Chico's Classic Barbershop. Classic, bro. How long has this been? This thing been around? Uh, we've been open for almost four months now. Okay. Yeah. So and, we, and where were you barbering before that? Before that was in my living room. No, dining room. And before that was a barbershop in Portland. And that's where you met Jay Koo. Yeah, that's where I met Justin. And uh, I think... The first time I cut his hair was at the first shop that I ever worked at. And then he followed me to the next one. And yeah, he's just been following me everywhere. <laughs> he's following you around. Well, hey, let's, uh, I don't want to spoiler alert, you know, I don't want to get to the end of the story. Sure. Where do you feel like you're the, the Chico story starts? So the first memory of, of trauma that I have is when we went to Texas because my aunt overdosed off of heroin and and passed away so we we went to Texas and one day my dad just wasn't around and i remember we were driving around looking for him and this is my stepdad where were you living at the time uh well we drove from here from Vancouver to San Antonio mm-hmm. to attend the funeral and uh somewhere along the way mm-hmm. my dad disappeared and uh, we were just looking for him. And so, uh, come to find out, he uh, ran off and got drunk and ended up uh, finding some prostitutes. And it was like this whole big thing. And so, uh, that's kind of like the first time I felt some kind of traumatic. How old are you? Uh, probably around four or five. And so your whole family, like your mom and your dad had made this trip to see or to go to this funeral. Right. And while you're on it, your dad takes off to f- and finds prostitutes. Yeah. Yep. And you remember this. I remember it pretty clearly. Yeah. So the, okay. <laughs> so 
what happened? Like you found him? <laughs> what is yeah, it? He you just, don't, do you remember? He, all I, the next thing that I remember is that he was just back and we just kind of resumed operations. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then after that was just uh, a repeat cycle of him being gone mm-hmm. all the time. Mom and dad fighting, alcohol being the primary, you know, kind of uh, factor there. Uh, so a lot of him coming and going, mm-hmm. a lot of abandonment going on, a lot of uh, fighting. So that was, yeah, that was that was my model growing up. But I think that's where the story basically starts. Mm-hmm. And I mean, kind of, I guess you could say even before that <laughs> with my mom. You know, and before that, and before that, so yeah, that's what that's where I, I I feel like my story started, and it just got worse from there. You know, yeah. So so, what did you make of of your parents and the alcohol and the fighting? Do you remember what like how you were operating and because of what they were doing, how yeah. that affected you? So that that it, I guess the best way that I could describe it as just living a life of constant fear always on edge about what was going to happen when's the next time that they were going to fight when's the next time my dad was going to leave when's the next time he was going to come back so it was always this anxious state of mind uh, but it just became normal and uh I, I learned how to cope with that and but not realizing that it was not normal hmm. or wasn't healthy hmm. So that kind of just built the framework for how I saw the world, how I saw uh, how a family operates, how I saw people should talk to each other, how just just how to live. Yeah, how did you see the world? Uh, well, we grew up in a, in in a predominantly white area, mm-hmm. so I saw the world as being. I mean, I I felt inferior. Uh, I I saw us as less than mm-hmm. because of our status, our financial or economic status, um, our status in in society as far as like our race. Mm-hmm. So I always viewed the world as, um, I guess you could say, I I I felt like I lived in a place where I was not good enough, um, and that there was this higher level state of being to have had mm-hmm. and we didn't have it so there's like a sense of feeling shame or uh just lack of 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 value hmm. right yeah so as you're getting older did you have problems like with disrespect with your mom and dad or where was your relationship with them cool it was just their relationship that was the hard part. Yeah, that's a good question. So my dad was very manipulative and uh, he would buy us with, <clears throat> uh, with money. He would give us money at the end of the week and tell us to go buy whatever we wanted. We used to live next to a little minute mart in the country and it was like right, right next door. And so we would just walk over a hop and a skip and we're there. And so uh, whenever they would fight, m- my dad would win us over by with with money and so that uh, naturally made me gravitate towards my dad more and uh he was always blaming my mom telling me that it was her fault and uh just whispering in my ear 
and uh and and i grew to hate my mom mm. i grew to really start disrespecting my mom uh i remember one time when she when my dad had left uh i wrote a little sticky note i was in kindergarten i barely knew how to write and i wrote on a sticky note i want dad back and i put it on the dresser hmm. and when she found it she asked me if i wrote it wrote the note and I denied it, but I was the only one in the house who could have wrote it. My brothers were much younger than me, you know. Right. <laughs> so I denied it, uh, but I, I had copped an attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were driving one time, and I was just giving her, you know, heck of attitude. Mm-hmm. And she said, "If you don't stop talking back to me, I'm going to pull over and slap you." And I responded in a disrespectful way, and she uh, she lived up to her promise. <laughs> And uh, it just it just made me even more angry, more angry and resentful towards her. So, uh, but I, I I had not realized that the whole time my mom was just doing her best. You know, right. she had like four kids at the time. My dad was gone. I couldn't imagine the stress that she had to go through because at the time we were just living off of food stamps and whatever my dad could make working in the fields or side jobs on the farms or whatnot. Right. You know. Are are you Mexican? Yeah. Was your family did your family have a Catholic background? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we went to Catholic church every time my dad did something bad. And uh I hated it because it was Spanish. They spoke Spanish and I didn't understand what they were talking about. It was so boring. Uh and, and there's times when I fell asleep, you know, and or times when they let us go play outside and uh the priest would yell at us to stop monkeying around on the on the jungle gym too much, you know, and it was just not a place that I felt like was a safe space or a place that I wanted to be. But I, I just remember going there and uh, we didn't go, I guess you would say religiously. We didn't go every weekend. It was occasional. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, that yeah, that's where we grew up. That, that was my exposure to to Jesus on the cross there was a big old statue of Jesus on the cross and I, I never understood it, nor did I want to or care. Uh, so yeah, that was my experience with growing up Catholic. So yeah, who was God? Right. This guy in the sky that uh, I guess you prayed to when you did bad things um, or this this person that you would ask for things if you wanted them. That was my idea of what God was hmm. when I was young. So as you're getting older, um, man, we were talking the other day about jail or prison or whatever, and um, I'm like, well, how did we get there? Like, when did you start <laughs> uh, being a, a rascal? When did you yeah. start getting in trouble? Yeah. So it kind of ties into what we just finished talking about. Uh, this idea of God, right? I, when, when, when I was young, and this is a little bit after all the turmoil that I was, that I just got done explaining, my cousins came from Texas because mm-hmm. uh, their mom had died. Right. And so we took them in and uh, they, one in particular, one of my cousins was so mean uh, telling me that he wishes I was dead, you know, just making the motions with his fingers like he was shooting me. And um, so that uh, started 
maybe like a year or two, somewhere around that of uh, of straight trauma. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we were sexually abused in, in the worst way uh, many times. And so, uh, and then we would go to the church mm-hmm. and, uh, or, you know, late at night when I was just crying, begging God to mm-hmm. do something like save me, save us, you know, stop this from happening. Mm-hmm. And nothing ever, uh, to my knowledge, stopped it from happening. It just was just a nightmare. This is from that older cousin, just... Right, yeah. And so, uh, growing up very, very angry at the idea of God and coming to this conclusion that there was no God just uh, left me with a sense of just, um, I guess you're on your own. You got to do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, when I grew up a little bit more and I was in high school... uh, there was no point in trying to do good. There's no point in trying to live a moral life because uh, I would get made fun of for it or uh, it just wouldn't produce the desired outcome. In one particular case, one day I was doing my homework and uh, my uncle, who who was gangbanging at the time and I looked up to, uh, he came home and asked me what I was doing and I was sitting at the computer and doing my homework and he said, what are you doing? And I said, Oh, I'm just doing my homework. And he laughs at me and slaps me upside the head and calls me point Dexter. And, uh, that moment right there, I decided that I was done trying to, uh, do good. Mm. And what I did next was go to the mall and buy the same shoes that he had which were the old school uh, Pumas. Mm-hmm. They kind of look like the uh, the original G-Nikes, as they call them, the mm-hmm. Nikes, Cortezes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, and, I, and I bought a pair of the fat red laces that he had on them, too. And so I bought It's like those. a gangbanger outfit. Yeah, right? Like the essentials. <laughs> <laughs> the starter kit. Yeah. And so I came home with that and... Uh, and I bought a shirt, a red plaid, a plaid red shirt, and I, I was wearing it when he came home uh, the Did next Did you day. have the top button buttoned and then the rest not of it Not yet, <laughs> not yet. I didn't quite hone in on that till later. Yeah. Uh, but he, he asked me what I was wearing. And when I, I just shrugged my shoulders and I was like, I don't know. Like with this kind of like attitude, right. you know, this newly found attitude, like, what's it to you? You know? Right. He just smirked and nodded his head in approval. And that right there was just gold to me. That's recognition. All the affirmation you needed, right? Yep. The affirmation, the 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 respect, the the nod of approval. Yeah. And so I, I fed off of that and it was like, oh, no, I need to do more. Hmm. So that's kind of what started my path down the road to a life of crime, you know. How old were you when the poindexter comment was made. Uh, around 15 15 yeah and so then from then on you're did you gradually get into stuff or were, did you kind of just jump right into some stuff i try to hold back from doing the most as long as i could because i was scared of it 
right? Mm -hmm. Smoking weed or drinking. I didn't even start drinking, dude, till I was like 17. Mm -hmm. But I played the role mm -hmm. until I couldn't, I couldn't hide it no more. Or I, I, I was in a position where uh, I could not deny what they were telling me to do or asking me to do. And uh, so I, I wore the clothes, you know, I, I walked the walk, I, I talked the talk, you know, just kind of played the role mm -hmm. up until I got past uh, the joint for the first time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that I, I took my first hit when I was 17 and took my first drink when I was 17. And boy, did that really, really feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, years of just pent up frustration and anger, resentment, uh, insecurities. And wow, the, the, it sure does take it away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But after that, it was just like, you know, warp speed. I caught up in, in the, you know, I consider myself a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. You know, people who... uh here that i didn't have a drink till i was 17 or like dang i started drinking when i was nine right you know so i felt like almost like i needed to catch up and and i did yeah yeah so in your mind was there any kind of plan or goal or anything you're just like i want to be like you i'm just gonna keep i'm just gonna keep rolling like what what in your mind was the outcome that you wanted what were you going for right yeah that's a good question i don't think that there was uh essentially a like a long-term goal that i had it was just in the moment this is what makes me happy this is i found my my identity and this is what i'm gonna be and so uh any opportunity that came to validate that or prove that i would definitely take it you know i didn't think about graduating i didn't think about what i wanted to be i didn't think about a family or anything like that. I didn't think about a 401k. Right. It was just, what can I do today to, um, to get, to gain more approval, to gain more status. And, uh, yeah. So that, that to answer your question, yeah, that's what it was. What like. was the identity? Uh, I felt like I was a part of something. Uh, I didn't know quite what it was exactly, but I knew that other people were in it and they liked me. And so whatever this thing was, uh, and, and plus my last name, you know, my back in the day, my last name was really well known through my uncles and my cousins. What is it? Barasa. Okay. Barasa. Yeah. yeah. And so anytime somebody would hear my name, they would just, oh, you're related to so-and-so. Oh, you're related to so-and-so. And I'd say, yeah. And they would just more approval, you know? more and so uh my last name was associated with wearing red and the number 14 and so i just started to just do more things wear more colors you know uh just really really associate myself with this with this gang member identity were you a member of a gang at this time or were you just like trying to play the part to maybe be in a gang. Right. So, I mean, it, nothing was really too organized back then. It was just like a, a general identity mm -hmm. that stemmed from California, right? And uh, to get into the gang, uh, typically you would have to get jumped in or do some type of, uh, some form of initiation. Mm -hmm. um, but because my uncles were well known, it was almost like I was fathered into the, 
mm-hmm. to this identity and that I didn't need to do anything. And plus I was already doing things to, to prove that I was willing to do whatever it took. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I see, if we see somebody walking down the street, that was the opposition of us, you know, mm-hmm. I would just volunteer myself to go take the first steps to, mm-hmm. you know, get in a fight or whatever. Right. So is that the kind of like, you tell me as much or as little as you want on this. Is that the kind of things that you were doing? Just like, what are we talking about? Like theft, fighting, like what yeah. kind of stuff were like at age 17 as you're, as you're getting into? It was more violent than uh, other crimes, right? Like stealing radios from cars or stealing cars or whatnot. It was, it was more about fighting the opposition and so that what that would look like was, you know, anything from stabbings or attempted murders. Uh, I remember one particular time um, I was hiding in the bushes with a Colt 45 mm-hmm. waiting for this guy to come back because we had an altercation prior that day. Mm-hmm. And I figured this is the area that he lives in. I'm just going to wait here. And when he comes driving by, I'm going to run out and, you know, shoot him. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you want to kill him in your mind, or did you just want to scare him, or you, what, do you know? Did you even think about that? I wanted to commit the act, huh, of inflicting the pain, and I didn't really have an intended consequence. I didn't think about I wanted to kill this guy. I just wanted to do this thing. I just wanted to shoot him, and uh, and 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 he never came back. There. Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and you know, and then what what ended up happening um as a consequence is and not him in particular but that actually happened to me mm. right where somebody tried to kill me with the 45 and the reason why i know it was a 45 is because i walked back to the scene and picked up all the shells right i wanted to know what it was you know um were you just coming home one day or what what's no that? i was actually driving with another uh friend of mine who <laughs> Uh, so we were at this store and my friend goes into the store to buy his cigarettes and this guy pulls up next to us and goes to the payphone and he, he was genuinely going to use the payphone and he looks up and he notices my friend in the store. And so he just freezes, hangs up the phone and walks back inside to his car. And then they pull out of the parking lot and they park on the side of the street. So, my friend comes back and I said, hey, this dude just went to go use the phone, saw you, and then put the phone down and went into his car and they're parked right over there. And he says, well, shoot, just follow him then. Okay. So I pull out of the parking lot and I get behind them and they start to pull off. So we follow them, not even two blocks uh, later, they turn, they 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 veer into the medium lane or this, the middle lane, the turning lane. Yeah, I mean. And so I pull up right next to them, right? I'm driving and we pull up right next to the car. So I'm face to face with the passenger. They're mm-hmm. on the left, I'm on the right. And this dude just pulls out a 45, fully extended out the window. I literally had like a moment of stillness where I saw the barrel of this gun. Mm-hmm. And then he just starts letting loose seven times, just unloaded a full 
magazine from mm -hmm. that 45. And uh, so I veered right and I tried to get away. And I don't know how, uh, how I didn't get hit, how my friend didn't get hit, how any of the windows didn't get shot up. Hmm. There was not even a bullet hole in the car, but there was, uh, my tire did get shot out, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so it was just, that's the type of lifestyle that we lived. Uh, and so we would just go back and forth. So when you had gotten away from that incident and you were not hurt, what was your mindset? Was it, was it like, oh man, we better chill with this? Or was it better, it was like, oh, we need to go get them? Like, Yeah, I, w I, w I, w I won't lie, I was, that terrified me, I was scared. Uh, nothing like that ever happened, but uh, it was real. And my mindset was, uh, we, gotta, we gotta do something. We gotta do something else to uh, retaliate. Right. right. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. And um, fortunately, uh, nobody died. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I'm just super grateful that uh, nobody, you know, I don't have anybody's life on my hands, right. so to speak. So how old are you th at this time? Still 17 or are you getting a little older here? Uh, that was about 18, 18, 19. What were you doing to, to, to make money or to pass the time? Yeah, we were selling drugs. Uh, I would go to high school, right? And mm -hmm. 18, uh, I was still in high school and I, I would go and sell weed. Mm -hmm. Nothing major, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I, I also had a job too. Because mm -hmm. growing up, we were always working. I always had a job. Um, so, you know, selling drugs was was a thing there. Passing time was just uh, sitting out in the front of the house drinking, mm -hmm. you know, waiting for rivals to drive by and test us or, you know, it was just kind of yeah. like this back and forth thing. And that happened plenty of times. What does what your mom and dad think about this at, at this point? Do they talk to you about it? Do they see where you're going? Are they nervous? My mom was devastated. Uh, there was a point where she came and because um, we planted to rob a, a, a store mm -hmm. and I had, divulged the information to my girlfriend at the time and she was uh it scared her so she told my mom mm -hmm. and my mom came and just begged me to come home and she was crying begging me please just come home and i just was so gone you know i said no i'm not coming home i don't want i don't want this you know i, I, I want this life i don't want that life it's and so it was really hard for her. I can imagine what it's like as a parent now mm -hmm. that I have a son mm -hmm. uh, worrying about him getting killed or what he's going to do to somebody else or, or anything like that. But my stepdad, he was just pretty much like cold at the time, you know. Uh, he never made any attempt to father me into, right. you know, changing or anything like that. It was just, and he's my stepdad. You know, yeah, what can he really say? Yeah. yeah. Right. So is what happens next? What happens next is, uh, I have a son at 20. I have a son and in the process of, of, um, his mom being pregnant, I get my first, uh, serious 
charge, which was a distribution of meth, distribution of marijuana, uh, possession of uh, a scale, right? Contraband or uh, in possession of five pistols. How did this, like, how did you get caught? Uh, well, I had stole, I stole a gun from my cousin, my cousin's husband. He was in the army and I stole her pistol, which prompted her to call the police. And so they did an investigation and were just following me around. And I was living at my son's mom's house at the time. Mm -hmm. And so they had got a warrant, uh, to, to arrest me Mm -hmm. because they believed that I had the gun Mm -hmm. and, when they pulled me over, they executed the warrant. That's when they caught me with the drugs uh, and the paraphernalia in the in the, uh, in the trunk. And they went to my son's mom's house and they executed a warrant there. Mm-hmm. My my son's mom was about seven months pregnant. And um, so they had her in handcuffs and everything. Uh, and so that that's where I caught my charge. I took full responsibility for it because they told me while they took me to jail i called her i said hey what's going on she said well they have me in handcuffs they answered the phone and the detectives want to talk to you so they got on the phone while i'm in jail i'm like and they said hey we got your uh, girlfriend here in handcuffs and we're going to charge her if you don't take full responsibility for all of this right now admit that you're guilty and that this is all yours and i said yeah i'll do whatever you want just let her go. Come down to the jail. I'll I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Was it all yours? Yeah. Okay. It was all mine. Uh, so they said, okay, we'll be there in a second. Mm-hmm. So they drive down to the jail. They put me in this dark room. You know, this stereotypical like dark room with yeah. the light on the desk, you know, <laughs> me on one side and them on the other. It's and like so a they, TV show. Yeah, dude. So they slide over the the, the, the recorder. And they said, now tell us what you said over the phone. And I looked at them and I said, I want a lawyer. And they just looked at me like they were so mad. They're like, are you serious? And I said, yep. And they said, all right, have it your way. And so uh, I ended up taking a deal later on mm-hmm. for a year, uh, 18 months. And that's what, the first time that I went to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, were you, when you're getting pulled over and all this stuff is happening... Are you like freaked to flip out? Like, what? What's your mindset? Or yeah, dude. I mean, in, in that in, at that time, like me, I didn't know what else to do except for just to pull over. I mean, I'm. I know I'm doing stupid things, but I'm not that dumb to take you know the <laughs> the cops on a chase. And I knew that they had me. Right? What else am I going to do? So I just pulled over and hoping that uh, it was just a routine stop. Mm. and uh try to lie my way out of it um but you know their their intention was to search the car for this gun and uh so everything just happens so fast you know adrenaline is just pumping you're just scared a lot of fear Mm -hmm. right because you know you got you got caught and you know this is not good and you're gonna get in trouble i just never been in trouble to that extent up until that time so uh i was just trying to play as smart as I could in that moment, which Mm -hmm. is why I told them to just come to the jail. Right. Mm -hmm. How can I get out of this? Well, I'll just tell them what they want to hear until 
they come here and then I'll just brush them off, you know? Mm -hmm. So you go to prison for 18 months. Tell like, what was that like, man? Like, yeah. So it was pretty intense because wait, before you go into this, God's still just a guy in the sky. Oh, God doesn't really exist to me anymore, you know, or it's just, mm, it's just not even on my mind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I had no intention of seeking God. Right. At all. Um, it doesn't seem like he's involved in your life, so. It doesn't even seem like he's real. Right. Yeah. Um, so I get to prison and it's pretty intense. You know, I've got tattoos that, uh, that show what gang I'm in. And, you know, it, 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 it goes down, even though it's Washington state, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, you can't get through prison without running into a rival or, or having problems with other group segments mm-hmm. because there's alliances, you know, yeah, the blacks typically align with the northerners. Uh, the whites typically align with the southerners. Uh, so you have more than just one threat to watch out for. And so just super intense, you know, um, but I made it to my mother institution where things, politics are settled. You know, there's, there's, there's formality, there's a structure on Mm -hmm. how to coexist with other group segments. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, I just spent my time just trying to, get through right right i got sentenced to 18 months but i only did a year because of my time that they cut off for good time i guess you would call it Mm -hmm. right and so uh i did a year but i could not imagine a year from when i first started it just seemed so far out you know a year but i made it through um super depressed you know just really wanting to be home felt super lonely on my 21st birthday. I was by myself in prison, right? Didn't even get a card telling me happy birthday, just all alone. And, um, I was pretty sure that I was going to do good though. When I got out, were you, were you, um, did you have a drug dependency problem or alcohol? Were you, did you consider yourself an alcoholic? Uh, or would you now consider yourself back then an alcoholic? It's a good question. What is an alcoholic? Somebody who uh, abuses alcohol and needs alcohol to 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 survive. I guess at the time I would say that I was an addict and an alcoholic. I couldn't just stop. Were, did, did prison kind of dry you out? Or was it plenty of opportunities in prison? I, I ended up actually... Uh, using in in prison the first time i did smoke weed um i did drink but as it came close oh i was actually selling uh contraband too uh tobacco mm-hmm. right when i finally made it to a camp in the last four months of my time that i did in prison in that stint uh, i found a way to get tobacco into prison mm-hmm. into the camp and i would sell it mm-hmm. So, and I got caught <laughs> like two months before I'm about to get out. I get caught No, and I was so like, dang, they're going to just take all my good time away. But what ended up happening was they suspended my, my 
my infraction. Mm-hmm. And they said, if you get caught again, then you're going to go back to medium, mm-hmm. you know? So I stayed clean for the last two months, but I wasn't really sincerely ready to change. I thought I was, but I wasn't, my, my behavior was not <laughs> running parallel with, with that. And, but so like you just said, you, you thought you were going to be able to get out and you really, you, you dislike prison so much that you're like, I, I don't want to go back. Did you consider like changing your life? Yeah, I did. And what that looked like was just staying out of trouble, mm-hmm. you know, taking care of my family, but not necessarily letting go of this gang member mentality mm-hmm. or this identity that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you just don't do that. You just don't throw it away or let it go. Cause that's a sign of weakness and just, you know, a reflection of your, insincere and uh, disingenuous um claim Mm -hmm. you know in the first place right so you could do good and work and take care of your family and still have that identity like i'm still this guy want to be respected and revered you know Mm -hmm. yeah so you get home there's some happiness there's some tell me about getting home and, and what happened after that yeah well, on the way home, on my first, right when I get out, uh, it, you know, you're so used to feeling the, the, the weights and the steel, the cold, you know, all you see is m- muscle all around you, you know, other men. And mm-hmm. so when I, when I get out and I hug my son's mom, you know, just like she's small and soft and petite, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like, man. I'm never going back, you know, I'm mm-hmm. never going back to that. And she didn't know any better. I, I don't think, but w- when we were on our way home, my son's in the back seat of the car, you know, and she says, do you want a beer? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so not even, you know, an hour after I get released, I'm already consuming alcohol again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we go home and, it was just like, yeah, so time to start doing good, I guess. You know, stay out of trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was not even two weeks later, one of my friends shows up, pulls up in front of our duplex and honks his horn and standing outside of his car. Mm-hmm. And and he's just yelling my name, yo, Chico, because mm-hmm. I'm trying to avoid people at this point right Right, but he knows that i'm out now and he just comes looking for me Mm because he's happy i'm home right this is my one of my best friends and uh he says what's up man he's like let's go and so uh i look at my son and he's looking at me and i look back at my friend and i made a decision to go with my friend Mm -hmm. and i didn't come home till the next day and that just kind of started another cycle right of going even harder this time with crime going harder with alcohol going harder with drugs going harder with selling them mm-hmm. going harder with committing more violent crime was there any kind of was it just like i'm doing it like like t- why why did you do it there was no sense of self-control there was just this pull uh I don't know. I, I I think I was still addicted to the lifestyle. You know, I just felt power. I felt 
purpose. I felt identity. I felt a part of when I was with them, hmm. when I was with my family, it wasn't enough. Wow. Yeah. People would listening would be like, well, you love your son and, and you did love your son. Absolutely. But like, yeah. How do you reckon? How did you reconcile that? Just like, I love my son, but I love this too. Right. And I got control. I'll, I'll be able to, uh, I felt, I felt like I knew what I was doing. Right. Like uh-huh. I couldn't control myself from making stupid decisions, but I felt like I was in control. And like in my mind, I got this, like I can still dabble in this lifestyle and uh-huh. still take care of my responsibilities this time. I'm going to do it smarter. Hmm. Yeah. So you go a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> what what happens, bro? <laughs> I have a feeling it's not going to, oh this section goodness. might not end up awesome. What happens? Yeah. So, I mean, do you was... have a, let me ask you, I, on your hands, you have uh, some tattoos that you've been working to remove. Are those from your first stint? This came after my first one. So so this is me going harder. Okay, so yeah. after your first one, then yeah. you start getting, and I you have one by your by your eye. Yeah, that, that's this is after. So this this is all coming up. This one on my eye was actually before. Um, I have ones on my hands that were uh, before my second. Well, tell me about the one on because you were saying something about it the other day, and I thought that was yeah, like your mindset in getting. The eye tattoo. Yeah, I well that happened when I was eighteen and I was in jail for the first time or second time or third. I can't really remember, but I was I just remember I just wanted to I wanted for people to know who I was and what I represented. So I had uh one of my friends in jail tattoo these four dots on my face. And when he was done, I looked in the mirror and they weren't big enough. You know, I wanted them to be so visible. And um, I just remember just feeling so much anger and and just wanted to just express that in some way and just be like in your face, you know, mm-hmm. by tattooing something in my, on my face. What and, did the dots represent? Uh, so I got four dots on one side and on the other one I have one, mm-hmm. which uh, symbolizes the, the gang that I was running with. 14. Yeah. Um, and that way there was no mistaking about it, you know you knew who I was and I, I wasn't ashamed or afraid to show it to anybody. Um, so that was, so he made them bigger. You're just like, go, all, I'm all in. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm glad that I didn't go bigger cause <laughs> it would have looked stupid. Uh, and they, I guess they kind of do now, but, um, it's, it's a decent size. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't think you really just from like where I'm sitting from you, it's not, I would have to take a closer look right, to be like, yeah. oh, okay, those are yeah. You can't really jail tats, yeah. Uh, but those ones came before the ones on my hands, and I got one. I got uh, one pretty good size across my chest, and one on my stomach uh, that I got after the first time I went to prison too. Okay, so you, so you're you're back and you're going. You're just like, this is me. This is my life. What happens next, man? Yeah. Uh, shoot. Like I said, the crimes got heavier. And in all reality, I should still be in prison for hmm. everything that I did. Right. Hmm. Um, and and I'm so thankful that uh, the way things went down 
produced the most favorable outcome. Uh, and if I would have got caught for the other things that I did, I, I definitely wouldn't be here right now. So basically two years after I got out, um, I got hit again with the same thing that I did last time mm-hmm. after I took the precautions to do things better, to do things smarter, to make sure that before I make a sale, I do a perimeter check in my block and make sure that there's no, uh, you know, unmarked vehicles or anything like that. If somebody comes into my house during a purchase, I'm not verbally confirming a purchase, you know, things like that. Just anything that I could think of to really, really just outsmart the police. Um, But inevitably criminals slip right inevitably we fail we just um i've never known and i'm not saying there's none out there but i've never known a successful drug dealer you know somebody who uh never like got away with it all away right right and um even even in the federal system there's what you call conspiracy and they could bring these charges up to 10 years after you commit the crime right Mm -hmm. so um, but anyways, I ended up, uh, selling, uh, meth to an FBI informant hmm. and this informant did a very good job of gaining my trust. Mm-hmm. And so I, it got to the point where I gave him the code to the alarm system in my house. And, uh, so just to give you an idea of how close we were or yeah. how much I trusted him, um, he made his way into my circle and, uh, and then I ended up getting caught again for distribution. Were you like, so you were big time at this point? No, dude, I'm not even big time. That was a thing. I was working still, I was working a full-time job and I was still, it, it, I more sold the drugs as a part of the lifestyle, right? It's like you, you don't think you really needed it? Yeah, I mean, I could have survived without doing it, but it provided a little bit more income and it provided me with the, you know, the means to use also, yeah. right? Sell enough to use and just have stuff around when we party and things like that. Right. Um, and it's just a part of the lifestyle. It's fun. Right. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. You know, this is uh, fast, quick money, but I wasn't on the level of selling pounds of meth. Right. You know, well... I guess I was, but I wasn't necessarily, that wasn't my primary source of income. Did you consider yourself like, yeah, I'm a drug dealer? Or were you like, nah, man, I'm, I got this thing going over here. I do have some stuff over here. Or were you like actively like looking to move stuff? At 18, I was. Mm-hmm. But at that time when I was 22, 23, I wasn't. Um, it was just little stuff here and there. Right. Yeah. So I actually ended up selling him, uh, I had, I got charged with three counts of distribution of cocaine Mm -hmm. and then one count of distribution of meth to the FBI informant. Mm -hmm. Um, on one particular case, I went across the walkway into his duplex and I met his cousin who was sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. Um, come to find out. He was the FBI agent oh, okay. that took me down. So 
uh, they would surveil me from across the way through his window um, and just take pictures and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's how I got caught up the second time. So how long were you in prison that time, the next round? That time they had me dead to rights is what they said. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, let me explain the situation on how I got arrested first is, um, there, there in the duplex in that complex there, um, where there was, it was, it was a quadplex, um, a rival gang member moved in across the way. Hmm. And I thought to myself, man, this is not going to end well. Mm-hmm. While the FBI informant, my neighbor also lived there too Mm -hmm. so now you have all of these things going on right oh my goodness but i thought to myself my family lives here right my son lives here i'm working i made an an exception right to tolerating Mm -hmm. this guy living across the street and i went over there one time and i had my pistol and i said hey i know you work and i work and we're just both trying to make it right if you don't start no problems I won't start no problems and we'll just leave it at that, mm-hmm. right? Don't bring your homies over here and start nothing and I won't do the same, right? Mm-hmm. So we came to an agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thing is, when I had a party over, one, I had a party one time and there was alcohol and drugs involved, you can't really control your homies like that. Right. And he had his homies over after a concert and they were drunk and he can't control his homies. So it was like letting the dogs out, so mm-hmm. to speak, you know, and, and, and everybody just started fighting one, one another, you know, and mm-hmm. in my mind, I'm thinking to myself at that time, I did everything I could to avoid this, but I'm not going to respond in a light way. I'm going to actually, if something happens, I'm going to make sure that, uh, I don't get the short end of the stick. Mm-hmm. So I went to go grab my gun mm-hmm. and um, in my mind, I was going to kill this dude. Mm-hmm. I was going to kill whoever I could. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually had to uh, try to get my, my family and my friends back into the house. I'm going to go get this thing and we're going to go do this act. Mm-hmm. By the time I get back, uh, everybody's gone, right? And then I already know I can't stay here anymore. Mm-hmm. This is burned. Right. Mm-hmm. So within 24 hours, my whole apartment was empty and I had came up with a plan mm-hmm. to uh, retaliate. Mm-hmm. And um, so long story short, um, FBI informant goes and uh, tells, you know, the authorities that I plan on doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so you told him you were going to do it? Yeah. Because he's your homie. Yeah, right. And he had a, he had a daughter mm-hmm. uh, living there. And I said, just make sure you're not there, you know? Right. And so, so he, he tells the authorities what's going to happen. And um, I end up getting arrested before anything could happen. And uh, they figured, well, we already have these charges on him. Mm-hmm. Now's the best time to get him with an enhancement of a firearm. And so, um, so they arrested me and I had no, no firearm on me. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
right. imagine if they would have found it on me if i would have had it in my possession dude i would have still i would have got 10 years off the rip mm. mandatory minimum sentence 10 years um so that's why i say that it played out in the most favorable way because i still had to do five years but it was just enough for me to realize that this is not what i wanted to do so when you find out dude is an an fbi informant like what did that do to you i felt so stupid i felt so betrayed i felt like uh just so betrayed is the best way that i can explain it and i just i couldn't believe that after all the precautions that i took that i still got caught right yeah and it made me hate this individual so much that i would have if i could have made him disappear right yeah so you get five years yep i go i get five years um and there was there was no way out of it and i had to accept the fact that i was going to be gone for a long time devastated my mother my son's mom was just wrecked mm-hmm. by this whole thing. I'm not going to see my son for a long time. I could not believe that this was reality. How could this have happened? And it's just such an unreal experience when you go through it the first time where you're just like, this is extremely serious. Like, I'm done for. Like, one year, you know, is not a big deal. It's still kind of like, dang. But five years was like on a whole nother level in the federal system. How how long was it in between how many years from when you got out the first time to where you're getting this? Two years. Two years. Yep. Two years. And really only one because they had been watching me for a full year. They had a one-year ongoing investigation. Man, this is... So you go back into prison and depression sets in again? What Talk to me. Yeah, dude. So... I'm in solitary confinement because of my gang affiliation in the federal system. They separate you from your rivals, unlike the state, which integrates you. You guys have to coexist. Why was it? Why was it a federal charge? Uh, it was federal. I just because the feds picked up. The oh, because the FBI. Okay, not yep. Not, yep. not the state police. Okay, right. Yep. So, so I'm sitting there in solitary confinement, and I just can't believe that everything's taken from me. You know, like. I'm done. I'm done. And uh, I thought I was going to do like eight to 10 years. Right. Mm-hmm. So just let that sink in. You know? Was that what it was at first? Like, was that the, that you were going to get eight to 10? Yeah. That was uh, based on my criminal history and all of that. Right. Okay. It was eight to 10. That's what they told me. Right. Or whatnot. Did you have a lawyer? Uh, I did end up getting one. And I think that's how I got the five. Right. Right. Because I, I, I did sincerely express, uh, I that was a moment when I decided that I've been faking it the whole time. Hmm. Like, I've been pretending to be this person that I wasn't the whole time. And it just wasn't worth it anymore. I've gotten everything taken from me. And I didn't want to do this anymore. Let me ask you this. Do you think a lot of people, maybe this is a hard question to answer. Sure feel the same way that they're faking it and this is not really who they are or do you feel like 
that was just your situation or did you run into other gang members that you know when they get in trouble have the same thing like is this really happening is this really me mhm that's a good question i i think it's a lot it, it's the same for a lot of people um it's just the case of the man uh wearing the iron mask mm-hmm. you know i was doing all these things because i was I was hurt inside. I was broken. And I think that's a, the same for a lot of people. They know the difference between right and wrong. Um, but for some reason, you just decide to keep doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, they know, I knew in, inherently that I was not a bad person. Like, even when I was gang banging and doing my thing, I was still helping old ladies carry their groceries to their car, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of like these things that I found myself doing that were just not really, uh, didn't run parallel to a hardened gang banging criminal. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but I think that is the case with a lot of people. They know deep down inside, this is not who they want to be or who they are. Um, and that there's something better, but they're stuck. Right, And I felt the same way. I, I was stuck in a sense because I knew that I wanted to change and that this wasn't me, but I still had to play the part because I was in prison once again. And there's no way that I could denounce my identity because that would mean the threat of death or physical harm. And just a complete uh, dismantling of your integrity that you, that you held yourself to mm-hmm. as a member of this gang. So then at this point, you're just like, I can't fake it anymore. This is not who I am. Well, I admitted for the first time that this is not who I am. And I think that is the first time that I had this. I started on this path of discovering what and who, what I was, who I was, um, what my true identity was. um, Because that's the first time when I cried out to God. The, and, and and here I am at my worst now, right? And I'm just like, okay, you know, like if you're real, uh, get me out of this and I won't ever do it again, mm-hmm. you know? So now I'm just trying everything. I'm pulling out all the stops. I'm even talking to God who I don't even really believe in, right? Mm-hmm. But could be if, if you are, get me out of this situation. And that was when I, I was just crying in solitary confinement. Uh, and, and I cried out and I begged and I pleaded with mm-hmm. God if you're real, get me out of this. Um, and I'll never do it again. <laughs> right. But, uh, what I heard back was just complete silence. Uh, and, but I believe that God did answer me in a way. And that's the first time I had the dream that I had that just led me onto this journey. What's the dream, man? Well, the dream was, well, before we get into it, I have to use a restroom. Oh, do it, do bro. Yeah, break, let, right? we're going to take a break. Okay, tell me about this dream, bro. Dude, so I'm at this point where I'm ready for something different. And uh, I know that I'm not this guy who I portrayed. Um, so shortly after I cried out, to this God to get me out mm-hmm. of, of prison. I have this dream and I'm in this desert and uh, there's this tree off in, in the distance and I, and I get closer to the tree 
and it's bare. It doesn't have any leaves or anything like that. It's just this bare tree. And uh, there's a snake hanging from the limbs. And as I get closer to the snake, I see that it's dead. Hmm. And there's blood coming from its mouth. Uh, and, and there's, I look at its belly. And in the belly of the snake, there's uh, like three or four eggs um, that are exposed. And they start moving. One starts moving. Right. Wait, hold up. The snake is in the tree, mm-hmm. barren tree, mm-hmm. dead snake. Yeah. How do you see the eggs? Uh, it's in the belly. Like you see through the snake? You just No, the, the belly's cut open. Okay. Yeah. The, so the belly's cut open, right? Uh-huh. Um, like like somebody just slid it open. Uh-huh. Right. And you see three or four eggs in there. Yeah. And uh, so one of them starts to move and uh, it starts to hatch, right? And what came out of the egg was the beak of a baby bird. And uh, the bird makes its way, pokes its head out of the egg. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just this brand new baby bird. And I woke up right after that. And there was something about that dream. Like when I woke up, I felt like a new sense of potentiality. Like I knew it immediately when I woke up what that dream meant. And it was the death of the old me and the emergence of the new me, right? Like there's a possibility that something can come from this thing and there's a recreation, right? That Mm -hmm. at the time, that's the only way that I could explain it but it was good news because it meant that I had another chance to do something different. And at that time, that was my interpretation of the dream. Of course, I have a different interpretation of it now, but it excited me. It made me feel like I had potential. We need to bookmark this so we I can hear what the new interpretation is. I don't want to hear the new interpretation now, but later. Right. You got to tell me what it would. Yeah. So after this dream, I went on this path of trying to discover truth. And that came in the form of different uh, books on spirituality, um, Buddhism, uh, not necessarily the Bible. because This is still in prison while you're this, doing this? Yeah, this is still in prison. This was when I was going through my trial stage or like uh, the, the stage where you come up with a deal, mm-hmm. right? Um, I wasn't necessarily sentenced yet, but uh, I I couldn't go anywhere else. I was just stuck there. So I went on this little bit of uh, discovery mode where I started to read different kinds of uh, things. J- Jayku just walked in the place. Oh, man. Yeah, are we doing the podcast? The, we we doing the podcast, bro. We're, we're uh, it's, it's getting crazy, bro. It's getting crazy. So... Your key is right on the thing, just in case you want that. I'm going to edit this part out of the podcast, but... <laughs> What's up, buddy? Actually, I might leave this in. The baby's here? I think they went out to grab something to eat. 
they're just chilling while we're doing the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Chill, man. Yep. Whatever you need. So, uh, this guy that was in there was introduced me to the book called The Secret. And uh, he was a multimillionaire that got some kind of crazy charge. And so he lived off of this principle that you can manifest your life, right? And by putting frequencies out in the universe and things like that. And at the time, it was like this big hit, right? And so I started to read it. And uh, I've heard about it. I've never read it. The law of attraction. Okay. Is what it's based off of. And so like whatever you put out into the world, the uh, universe is going to send it back to you, right? So if you want to build wealth or relationships or whatever, you put those frequencies out there and you position yourself to receive these things. Uh, And so I don't imagine that he... uh, had it in his mind that he wanted to be in prison, but you know, he was a very successful and wealthy man. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I started to read the book and I got super attracted to it and started to apply these principles that they were talking about. And it was crazy because it seemed like things were happening that I was putting my mind to anything from like when we were playing a poker game, you know, to, and getting a hand to, uh, receiving the best possible outcome in my case, which was to receive the minimum five-year mandatory uh, sentence, right? Rather mm-hmm. than the eight years. And uh, so along with that book, I started to read other books, like one called uh, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Um, and he had a second, the first book that I read of his was called A New Earth, hmm. Right. Uh, and in his book, a lot of his references come from scripture. So he has this idea that we're, that, you know, like this is, uh, it's kind of hard to regurgitate what he meant or what I read, right? But basically there's this uh, idea that um, you could be completely happy, right? And just detach yourself from things that are happening. It is what it is. Hmm. Um, and, and a lot of references were from scripture. And so I really ate that up, right? Mm-hmm. Because I thought, well, okay, this confirms that Jesus isn't really this thing, this God, this man who performed all these miracles, but really a lot of it's just metaphor. Hmm. And so that's where I put Christianity on the shelf was just a model to live by a lot of metaphors because it all makes sense, right? This guy, what he's saying makes sense. And it actually helped me get by in prison, right? It Mm -hmm. actually helped me cope. And so, um, that was what my first year in prison looked like when I got sentenced and got sent to my mother institution in New York, uh, it was like I had to put my game face back on and pretend to be this guy still, right? Because I'm in very dangerous waters here. So you're you're a year in federal prison the first year. Where were you? Uh, SeaTac in, in Tacoma area. 
And then they're sending you across the country to New York. What was the name of that institution? That was Otisville. Otisville, yeah, it was a it was a FCI like a medium uh, detention center or a, a facility. Um, and the reason why they sent me over there was because of my gang affiliation, and they don't put integrate you with your rivals. So, and the way that everything's set up, the gang that I was running with here in the East Coast or in the West Coast is the minority. You can barely go anywhere without getting hurt. So the feds send you elsewhere mm-hmm. just to minimize the chances of anything happening. They don't want to clean up blood. They don't want to deal with all this stuff. So it's mm-hmm. easier just to just separate everybody the best they can. And so they ended up sending me to New York. And so you're, you've had this year where you're, you're enlightened by the secret and this other book. But as you're heading out here, you're just like, okay, I got to maintain an edge here right exactly exactly um traveling through the detention centers on my way to new york was just unbelievably stressful and i mean i'm talking about like i'm the last one to leave the doors when breakfast hits because i want to see everybody who is walking out of their cell to make sure that they're not a possible threat I'm have I'm walking with razor blades in my mouth, um, you know, just trying to make sure that if anything happens, I'll be able to defend myself. Mm-hmm. Because when if you get stabbed in in prison, I mean, the cops aren't gonna get in between two inmates and say, "Hey, stop it." They're gonna let things just play out how they play out, and then afterwards, all right, are you done? You know, if if you're the one alive, get down. You know. Um, so it's very dangerous and it was extremely stressful, um, beyond like misery. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was pretty intense and I'm the only one I'm traveling by myself. Uh, I don't have a partner or, you know, a friend or whatever. It's just me by myself going through this experience for the first time. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that was pretty intense still playing the part, still playing the role, still exercising and being regimented, you know, still communicating from across the cells to other gang members, you know, and just communicating in that way, sign language and um, just functioning mm-hmm. as, as, as a, as an active gang member. Right. Yeah. So you, what happens when you, you get there, you, you made it to New York now, um, I was received by other gang members and uh, I, I felt good. I felt reassured that I was in a safe place. And now it's about falling in line and starting to uh, get to know people and follow the rules, get to know the rules and just follow a routine under the identity of a gang member. Of course, you right. know, you got, you, you are with your people now. You mm-hmm. got to abide by the structure. And so what are you continuing to learn and read and what are you feeling like on your, on this dream, the snake dream, like where are you, what's next in your enlightenment of who you are and your identity? Well, that got put on pause for a while. <laughs> for how long you would, would yeah. you say? Yeah. I mean, probably about, um, two years, two years, two years. Um, is there anything, I mean, I'm sure there's 
something significant that happens in those two years or you're just going through the motions, gang member in this facility, day in, day out, following the rules, following the structure? Exactly that. Exactly that. Um, It was hard. It was extremely hard to just live day by day pretending to to love this uh this ideology this brotherhood these relationships that you don't really want you have to fake it so hard the only time that i would really genuinely smile would be when i was talking to my mom on the phone Hmm. or my son and it was just uh, a complete nightmare for two years but you have to you have to i mean you hear about stories about i heard this story about this one guy in nazi germany when uh he had to hide himself in the bot dead bodies of of the jews that were dead and i felt almost like that i had to pro i had to hide myself in i have to immerse myself in this death in this in 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 just the pure evil around you hmm. so much so that i would volunteer myself to do things like hey if you need me to take anybody out i'm your guy Mm-hmm. Let me know. I'll do it just so I can mask hmm. uh, my my true desires, you know? Right. Just so I can make myself out to be somebody um, under the radar, so to speak, right? Uh, that way, they know that I am down for the cause and they don't want to ex- they don't want to use somebody who's that down because he has potential to go up higher right right uh that's that was my train of thought right my strategy but you know i i feel like some people could see through that mm-hmm. you know so i was always paranoid mm. um and it was just a living hell uh, up until the day. I can't imagine the stress just put on your body, your mind, mm-hmm. just working overtime just to survive. Yeah. Always in fight or flight mode, dude. From when you go to sleep to when you wake up, just complete misery for two years. Wow. But that all changed when uh, my my points dropped. Uh-huh. In the point system, the lower your points, uh, the lower custody level that you're in that you're at. And so when my point level dropped and they told me that I qualified to go to a minimum facility, I saw light at the end of the tunnel. Uh-huh. And I said, oh my goodness, this is like my chance to just escape this. Uh-huh. And uh, on the way... Uh, out of prison that day when I finally got transferred. I said, I'm not out of the woods yet because I still have to make it through the transfer facilities, mm-hmm. which are really dangerous. Uh, but when I, if I can make it there, I'm good. I'll finish the rest of my sentence and I'll go home from there. But this facility that I was headed to, right, in Florida, mm-hmm. was one that was in question by uh you know the other gang members it was a place that they were trying to establish as a stronghold for to to further their agenda for your gang yeah so i had orders to when i get there if things aren't running the way they should straighten it out straighten it out which means do what you got to do 
you know, take anybody out that you have to take out and make sure that, uh, you know, we're not coexisting with the enemy. So, anything. like, how did, like, do they tell you this? To, like, hey, bro, when you go down there, da 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 and you're just like, yeah, man, I got you. Like, exactly, bro. Exactly. Like that. And, and, uh, and in your mind, you're like, I don't want to do this. I just yeah, want to be out. Yep, exactly. Uh, and so I get transferred and I'm leaving on the bus, bro. I'm leaving. And I cannot tell you the the relief that I felt, dude. Like, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of there. You know, uh, I don't know what's ahead of me, but I know it's not this, right? So when I finally arrive to... Florida, mm-hmm. this this new prison. I mean, it's in central Florida, you know, like it's sunny. Um, it's beautiful. Like it's free. There's sand instead of dirt and rocks, you mm-hmm. know, it's a bunch of sand and grass. And I get there and uh, I am received by the other uh, gang members that have already been placed there. Mm-hmm. And you can just tell it was different, man. Like they were, they seemed like they were happy <laughs> to oh, be wow. there, you know? Uh, so I did the rest of my time there. And uh, there I was able to further my quest in the spiritual search uh-huh. um, because I had no time before to do that. But right. now I was free. I was in a place where there was no prison politics, there was no. Uh, there was a little bit of structure, but there was not really any pressure. Did you have like a, a cell there or is it different? It's dorms there. They're all dorms. So it's in this like big building where there's just concrete dividers mm-hmm. and and two beds in in each cell, mm-hmm. right? No, no doors, no bars or anything like that. You can mm. stand up and see everybody else if they stand up. Hmm. So that that's what the structure was like. Um, but there was so much more freedom to move around. You can go to the library and listen to documentaries if you wanted to. You can uh, take classes, writing classes, business classes. You can do, uh, you can go out and, and use the weights. Or It was just so much more open and free hmm. that I can tell why the other gang members that when they arrived, they didn't carry out the mission that they were sent there for. <laughs> right. It was like, screw this, you know, like, I'm going to stay here, dude. Like, I'm good. Like there was other rival gang members that were there, but they were like, I'm, I'm trying to go home. Right. So that's when I was able to, uh, I felt a, a, a lot of relief there. And I continued on my quest to find out more about this, new path that I wanted to walk. And that came in the form of uh, psychology books that I read on how the criminal mind works, you know? What were those? Do you not remember the names of some of them? I, I don't, but I do remember reading them and thinking to myself like, wow, how do they, how do they know me so well? How do they know that I'm afraid of water? How do they know that I'm afraid of the dark? How do they know that I think like this? How do they know that I have trauma? Is that a supposed thing? Is that criminal minds are afraid of certain the dark and water i mean not for everybody i i can't say but this book was uh what do you call it um 
profile like they 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 went down like the average profile of a criminal right Mm -hmm. and it was just so strange how a lot of criminals and a lot of a lot of us that are broken have very similar um traits about us and our personality um that i had no idea that i was operating under but was in fact true for me wow and so it it kind of it helped me get to know myself a little bit better and uh, started going to AA meetings. Um, found out that there was something very spiritual in, in AA because mm-hmm. they do rely on a higher power to, to help you get rid of your alcoholism or to, you know, alleviate your symptoms. Um, and so I stayed there for 14 months and um, just prep myself the last year that i was there i attended a a drug program where they really focus on cognitive uh thinking like the way that your mind works helping you try to restructure the way that you think so that way you make better decisions when you get out Hmm. so how old are you when you get out when i finally get out i'm 28 i got a year off of my five-year sentence for attending the program and uh finishing it and so they i did four years out of the five year sentence and so i'm 28 and you move back to to washington uh portland mm-hmm. so uh they basically sent me on an uber to orlando international airport and said get to this halfway house by nine o'clock tonight they gave me a ticket a voucher for some food and like push me out into the airport and it is so busy. Like I am extremely overwhelmed because I mean, I've just done four years in prison and now you're telling me to make my way through this busy airport, get on a plane, you know, go to Dallas, get on another plane and make it to Portland. Like that was really overwhelming. Were you just, were you scared? Were you? Yeah, I was scared. I was scared because I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was scared about integrating back into society. I was scared about whether or not I was going to fail. Am I going to do drugs again? Am I going to drink again? I don't have any skills other than hard labor. You know, I don't have no idea what I want to do with my life. Um, so it was, it was pretty scary. Mercy. So you're able to navigate that and you get, back up here yeah i get back up here i start going to meetings you know i I find a job um i start i don't even get in the carpool lane uh outside of designated hours like i'm gonna keep the law (laughs) (laughs) the law is my friend yeah yeah so uh, that went on for uh a couple years i stayed sober for quite a while you know um i kept going to meetings um kept working um, paid my child support, you know, like did all the things that I was, was it easy to to find jobs even as a felon? Yeah, it actually was for me because I, I established a a good work history. You know, I have good work ethic. I can, I can shovel and I can do whatever you need me to do. I grew up working uh, with, with my stepdad. So I, uh, actually called my old boss back before I got out and I said, Hey, I know I was supposed to show up to work five years ago. (laughs) <laughs> four years ago and i didn't come but here's what happened and i'm ready to work again and he took me back wow that's so awesome. i had a job right when i got out uh so that was great and 
now that you're out, is kind of your spiritual life, it's kind of tied up with Alcoholics Anonymous and... Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, but I wasn't happy because Alcoholics Anonymous allows your higher power to be whatever it is that you want it to be. As uh, clear or unclear as you want it to be. And so I never found true happiness um, with that with not knowing what my higher power was. I just saw it as this vague universal, you know, kind of thing that, um, that I was just barely hanging on to. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it, but I was able to keep sober. Mm -hmm. Um, I started to get into new age spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I was so unhappy. What was, what was the, the, the root of your unhappiness? I don't know. I really don't know. At the time, I, I... I Just pissed that all this stuff had happened? Like, dude, I mean, it was just like not knowing who I was, what was, what I wanted. I wasn't happy with... I just felt like this sense of incompleteness. I felt... I didn't know what true love was. Um... It was just a lot of different things. A lot of things that I was still attached to in my in my trauma and all of that also. Were you in any romantic relationships? Yeah, well, when I got out, I, I mean, I jumped right into one. Yeah. Um, but those didn't work out because they were just based off of something that was uh, false. Right, you know, right, right. Just like a need for something. Um, in, in all reality, it was just like, this obsession to find the prettiest girl to make me look better and to make me feel better about myself too. And operating on, in, in under that premise never really ends up. I don't, I think you're right. Well. Okay. And so you're moving through unhappy, staying sober, but still a misplaced identity. Yeah. You're getting into the new age stuff. What is the new age stuff teaching you? Yeah. So that took me to, uh, YouTube is is uh is a rabbit hole I'm <laughs> sure you know of just wow there's so much on YouTube and I went down this path of s- typing in how to love myself. Oh that's, wow. Yeah, how to love myself. That's sad that. man. <laughs> just thinking yeah. that that's sad bro. And so I got introduced to a lot of people on the on on the internet who put out these videos of how to love yourself, how to live a better life, how to be more confident. And uh, that led me to this one guy on YouTube, Leo is his name. He's this bald white dude. And he's just talking about, you know, how to expand your mind, um, how to live right, how to love yourself. And I liked what he had to say. Hmm. Um, And I remember when I finally ran into one of his videos that was talking about psychedelics in the history of psychedelics and how they expand your mind and all this and that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, I've been sober for nine years at this point. I don't think that I'm ready to do that. But then I kept watching and I, it just made me more open to the idea of doing psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And he started talking about this, which led to this video. And I ran into Joe Rogan, (laughs) infamous DMT, you know, kind of, uh, he he's what leads a lot of people to DMT and ayahuasca. 
I, I am not familiar with DMT or ayahuasca. What What is it? Oh, man. So DMT is the uh, active uh, molecule, I guess you maybe want, we'll call it, in ayahuasca, which takes you on a spiritual trip is like, is an understatement, right? Like, so ayahuasca is a, it's a drug. It's ayahuasca a, is basically a concoction of, um, some leaves and some vines that you find in South America and you boil them together, you cook them together. And when it's all said and done, it's like a shot of ayahuasca, a dose of ayahuasca looks something like similar to maybe like, uh, like a shot of espresso, right? It's like this dark, thick type of liquid uh-huh. that you take. But so I discovered that uh, information and it just took me down this rabbit hole. I started to investigate what ayahuasca was. And Joe Rogan talks a lot about ayahuasca. Is that a thing that at the time he did not so much anymore. I feel like he's more over it now and just kind of realizes it's there's much more to life than to just keep taking DMT. But when you're first exposed to it, I mean, it's just a crazy experience. But that's his videos led me to that. And so I started to watch YouTube videos on testimonies from people who took ayahuasca. And everybody from doctors to psychologists, uh, people who were experimenting with this thing, their outcome was what I wanted. What they, was it? Yeah. They expressed feelings and experiences of a complete love and feeling a sense of uh, being a part of the universe and feeling connected to the universe and having this uh, idea and this feeling of love for the first time. And that's what sold me because I felt like that's exactly what I needed. And so that started my journey to this new age spiritual thing. And after a week of doing some hardcore investigating, I booked my first trip to Peru like three years after I got out of prison. It's about three or four years. Uh, I I made my first trip to Peru by myself to go experience this thing and to try to find some kind of... So you were just going to... Did you fly to Lima? You were just going to fly down there and based on information you got on the internet, you were going to get some ayahuasca that was the plan and, and see what it would do to you well i booked in a uh a stay at a at a, a center ayahuasca center oh okay <clears throat> yeah sorry i didn't include that uh yeah i booked a flight and the stay it was a week-long stay and that included four ayahuasca ceremonies and they give you a list of things to do to prepare yourself you have to basically cleanse yourself you have to f- get off whatever medication that you're on like you can't take <laughs> Like you can't take depression pills. Um, You can't take drugs. You know, you have to stop eating certain foods. Hmm. Um, So they advise you to wean yourself off of there. Like don't just cold turkey things, you know, like get yourself prepared. Like take some time to get yourself ready for this experience. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a extremely intense spiritual experience. Uh, So I make my way down to Peru Mm -hmm. and it is like, I've never been outside of the country Right, I went from being in a prison cell in solitary confinement to being in the in the Amazon jungle. You know, it was like this whole new experience for me, which was just so exciting. 
and seemed so promising. I was just so desperate for change, for alleviation from my own mind. And so I made it to Peru and had my first uh, experience of ayahuasca down there. What was that like? Wow. I, I, no matter how much I explain it to you, it will never do any justice on, on like, as far as like the experience goes. And I'm sure anybody who's done that can attest to that. It is beyond words. It is beyond what you could ever imagine. Um, something being right. Uh, but I was so desperate that I was willing to try anything. I was on the verge of suicide already. I wanted to kill myself, you know, like what's, I don't have anything to lose. Right. I'm willing to go through this thing. Um, so basically you're in a setting like this. It's like almost like a gazebo, right? This, this round gazebo, the gazebo like thing, they call it a, a maloka. Mm-hmm. And there's, there was 13 of us there plus the shamans, plus the facilitators, the helpers, right. That help you along the process. And we are all laying down on a mat in the circular room. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, basically you drink the ayahuasca before you drink it, you put your intentions into it. What are you seeking? What do you want to ask? So you, when you, before you drank it, what was your, you were asking, what were you asking? My, my intention when I prayed into it was, um, help me learn to love myself. Dang. Yeah. Help me learn to love myself and, and how to love others. Man, your heart is so sincere, bro. It was. It was. I was extremely sincere, dude. I was like, I just wanted to just be happy and learn how to love myself and um, not feel miserable. And so I prayed into it, whispered into the medicine is what they call it. And I drank it. Uh I was so nervous, dude. Like my hands were so sweaty. But at that point, I was already there. I'm not going to go back. Yeah. So I drank it and I said, well, there's no going back now. I walked back to my mattress and I laid down and everybody else got their dose. When everybody else gets the dose, the shaman drink it also. The facilitators can drink it if they want to. But after that, they blow out all the candles and it's completely dark. Well, not a hundred percent dark. You can still see the silhouettes of of people, you know, just, but mostly dark. And all you hear is the jungle around you, right? Because there's the nets keep the bugs out and things like that. But you can hear the, the jungle, the, the life in the jungle clearly. Uh-huh. So imagine you're just in the Amazon jungle, just hearing all kinds of sounds, right? And like, and you're just, you drink this drink and you start to meditate. They tell you to meditate while you're doing it. Like focus on your intention, bro. And it was about, 20 minutes that passed by and I thought to myself, well, maybe it's all about just like doing some deep meditation and, and just, I didn't realize that, um, there was much more to come, dude. And I was thinking like, is this it? You know, am I feeling it? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, bro, the shaman begins to sing after like 25 minutes of silence. He starts to sing in the native language that they have. Mm -hmm. And I started to, my vision started to sway left and right. And it started to, I started to become like really disoriented. 
And all of a sudden, like, I'm not in my body anymore. Like, I'm starting to experience this other reality that I was so unfamiliar with. It was so unfamiliar, I started to get scared. So my vision started to sway left and right, and I'm out of this body now, and I'm in this whole new reality that's so unfamiliar to me, dude. It's so scary because your whole reality and memory of what life was like and what reality is like mm -hmm. is completely gone and now you're in this new thing and couple that with the song the the voice of the shaman mm -hmm. it works in sync with each other your experience is in sync with the words that he's singing and he's like orchestrating this experience for you. Hmm. Ayahuasca is taking you where it wants to take you and you have no control. Hmm. And it is so scary and unfamiliar, dude, that like it's easy to panic and to freak out. And I felt the presence of like almost like my native ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was so... It was so spiritual and so ancestral, right? And so just, it took you through this thing, this experience that was a complete, like, I felt like I was in a washer, a, like a spiritual washer where I'm getting tumbled around and just like losing uh, all concept of reality. And just, it was so wild. And it was almost like on repeat, I would go through this thing, I would inhale and go through this experience and then exhale and just go through this other experience and just come back and forth come back and forth and mm -hmm. like no control at all and i i remembered that they told you remember that you will always come back like you are okay mm -hmm. and so i try to hold on to that and i also try to listen to the songs that the shaman was singing because they say focus on that mm -hmm. because that's where the healing comes from and uh and so I did. I focused on that for as, as long as I could till I was able to kind of stabilize myself. And you start to really kind of realize certain things about life and yourself and the universe. And things make so much sense. Like everything makes sense in this, in this dimension. Mm-hmm. And you start to be able to go inside of yourself and like analyze trauma or you start to feel things that you never realized before that you were feeling like mm -hmm. it's so hard to explain, but it's so profound and, and just impacts you in a way like you've never been impacted before. If that's the only, if that's the apex of whatever you've experienced in life is ayahuasca mm -hmm. and I understood why they call it medicine because it literally like takes you and puts you into like this, oh man, I can't explain it, dude. It's like one minute you're just going through this like extremely spiritual experience. Next thing you're in the matrix, right? You're mm. in this matrix and like you just get it. Um, and you start to learn more about yourself and like realize like how selfish you are. Like, how egotistical you are and how much of a disease ego is and like all of these things that it reveals to you. It's just so crazy. How could the Amazonians discover this thing that 
takes you on such a spiritual level. Um, and when I finally started to get a hold of myself and start to like, I started to touch the floor around me just to get a sense of familiarity mm -hmm. to make me feel like I'm okay. And I started to feel like I need to throw up, dude, like I'm going to purge. And so I get my bucket and I puke into it, dude. And it was like, I went into the bucket with my, with my throw up <laughs> and I went into this like vast, like infinite realm of just emptiness where I was just like purging out all of this negative energy and just like disposing of it. And, um, just like this wild, wild experience, dude. And like, when I start to finally get a hold of myself, I realize, like, wow, this is what it, this is why they call it medicine because it takes you out from this realm into something so wild and crazy that you are glad to be back when you're finally back into your body mm -hmm. and you're like, can stand up and you're like familiar with the reality. Mm -hmm. It makes you so grateful for for that experience that you start to like revere it as a sacred experience. Um, after that experience is when I met mother ayahuasca and my prayer was fulfilled in a sense because all of a sudden after all these crazy experiences, dude, I look up and there's this figure this face right in front of me and it resembles mother ayahuasca and it was like a human-like face mm -hmm. but she was covered in scales like reptile so scales. is this like a literal thing or in your mind no like this is literal bro like it, this is my reality now like she was real as can be right in front of me mm. and she was so beautiful so beautiful there's light that emanated from within her she was completely like compassionate and loving and i felt this nurturing like mother type of energy from her mm -hmm. and she held up this light and i grabbed i reached for the light at the same time when she gave it to me i reached for it and that simultaneously it went into my heart and when it went into my heart is the first time that i felt the closest thing to love at the time that I ever knew what love was that like, that was it. That was true love. And it was this realization that love was not to be had, but it was to be given away. And at that moment, when I realized that, that I was always trying to obtain it, but I never tried to give it. Hmm. When I realized that thing, it exploded out of my chest in rays of light, bro. And it was this realization that that is what love is, right? And it was like at that time when I realized that, the shaman finished his song. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy because in these experiences, in my experience with ayahuasca, every time the shaman finished with a song, it was wrapping up the lesson that was to be had during the spiritual experience. And I, I felt like I understood it. And I started to just like feel so euphoric. Like I've never felt so euphoric in my life. I was convinced that ayahuasca was it. It was the higher realm of consciousness. It was the answer to everything that I've ever wondered or like 
the trauma that I've ever felt, hmm. ayahuasca was the answer. And so I talked to my friend that was next to me and I was like, yo, what in the world just happened? He's like, dog, what the heck? Did you see what I saw? And I was like, dude, I saw everything, dude. I saw everything. Like, I get it now. It was it was so wild. You were convinced that you know everything that there is to know in the universe, but you <laughs> cannot explain it. Mm. You try to regurgitate it in words, and there's no way that you can explain it. Mm-hmm. So by that time, I'm I'm like coming back to um, settling in this ayahuasca experience, right? And I had this first. I felt love for the first time in my life. I'm so happy. I'm so just. Oh man, it was just a wonderful first experience, right? And then all of a sudden, bro, I just feel this calling, this draw, this pulling, this calling me outside of the Moloka. You're not supposed to go outside because people have died before, right? Like they can drown in the river. They get lost in the jungle. You think you're one with nature now and you just can just like immerse yourself in this experience and just, but people have you know, died. Mm-hmm. People have killed other people in their intense paranoia mm-hmm. in this ayahuasca experience. It's it's pretty crazy. So I get up and I start to walk outside. And one of the facilitators, he steps in front of me and he kindly and gently says, hey man, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm good, dude. Um, But I I feel like I need to go see whatever I need to see outside. Something's calling me outside. And uh, I walk outside and there's no light pollution in the Amazon, right? Right. So when I looked up into the night sky, bro, uh, is the first time that I believe I had this experience where God spoke to me. Hmm. And I looked up and I heard these words clearly 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 and so authoritative that it just shook every like thing inside of my being he said i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end all there ever was and all there ever will be and bro when i looked up into that universe like i felt like i was in the presence of true authority and i bowed to this thing that spoke to me and i understood it to be god at the time you believed it was yahweh or did you believe it was a god i didn't know who yahweh was but now i mean like now that i know the context i know about you know jesus and all that i believe my opinion and like i'm i could be wrong But I think that God met me where I was at. Hmm. This experience was separate from my ayahuasca uh, experience, but at the time I believed it to be all one thing. Hmm. Because later I I, I would be, um, God spoke to me, Hmm. right? Outside of ayahuasca in the Hmm. same way, Hmm. in a vision that I had. So... But at the time, I thought that it was in it was all one thing, and I felt so like I was in the presence of true authority. I thought it was God, bro. 
Um, so that was my first ayahuasca experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have three more. Different trips or the same trip? Everything's different. It's a different like different flights down to Peru is what I'm asking, or was it all down there at that one time? I went twice. Hmm. Um, so after my initial trip, I came back home mm-hmm. and I convinced my mom that this was life and that she needed to do it because she was depressed. Um, and so she did. She, she flew went, down. There she with you? flew down to Peru. She had a hard time uh, in her experiences because they could be extremely scary and extremely hard, like a complete living, like a living hell where you think you're going to die, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my last ceremony in my first go-around was scary. And I started to feel like something's not right. As beautiful as it is, there's something that's not right with this. Mm-hmm. But I ignored that so much so that I sent my mom down there. She had a hard time when she came back. She had one good experience and when she came back two weeks later, she got extremely ill and was in the hospital for like two weeks. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. But she was very, very sick. But I was still convinced that ayahuasca was legit. Hmm. I even started to sing over her like the shaman. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I felt like I had that ayahuasca still running through me and that I was a conduit of love and healing and i could heal her right right complete deception bro. (laughs) complete (laughs) deception listen dude my mom had an experience in the hospital where she saw jesus and i had an experience in ayahuasca where i saw jesus but we weren't convinced of the true identity of who he was it was like what do we do with this? You know, like, uh, we don't know what to do with it. But it, I'll tell you what, when I came back from Peru three months later, dude, I was back into depression, back into suicidal thoughts, back into my anger, back into a completely toxic relationship with my girlfriend. And I was so heartbroken because ayahuasca promised me so much. And and what I, this is how I took it. I thought I knew everything now and I was healed because a shaman theoretically cleansed you of all the energy and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, three months later, I was back into the same place and I was so heartbroken and disappointed because I'm feeling these things again and I shouldn't because I took ayahuasca with an amazing experience like that. You would think that you just, your whole worldview changes. You have this complete paradigm shift, but that wasn't the case. And four months later, dude, I was booking another trip to Peru. You thought you just needed more. I needed more. I needed, I didn't quite get it yet. I, I, there's still more to learn. And that thing that I needed to learn was going to really set me straight. And so I booked another trip. Wow. And uh, I ended up doing an extra three more ceremonies on a, in a private uh, session with the shaman that we had. And uh, was this like an? This sounds like it was an expensive thing. Like all this. Yeah, it depends on how much money you make. You know, like people spent. There's millionaires, billionaires that do this thing, and they just like immersed in ayahuasca and and have created retreats. You know, to because they're so convinced that this is the key to life. But me, bro, I was working a nine to five, right? Like so to speak. And I mean, 
what was like twenty five hundred dollars for uh, a stay. Uh-huh. You know, to me that was a lot of money. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and <clears throat> plus the flight. You know, um, but we paid the shaman an extra thousand dollars to give us private ceremonies, and uh, it was this trip wasn't as profound. It was actually more scarier. It was scarier, mm-hmm. and like at one ceremony, I thought I was gonna die. Like I was convinced that I was going to die. It was the most scariest thing in the world because death meant complete annihilation, a separation from existence. Mm-hmm. And I never looked at it that way. But in my in my experience in ayahuasca, that's what death was like. Like lights out, dude. You're done existing, a complete annihilation. And you're done. And I was so scared. Uh, but there were some profound experiences that I had. And when I came back home, I felt like something wasn't right, dude. Like as profound as these experiences were, I felt like something still wasn't right. And inevitably, I fell back into my depression even harder. Mm. Suicidal thoughts even harder. You know, uh, things started to get very, very aggressive in my relationship with my uh, girlfriend. And um, around all of that too, dude, I was struggling with my trauma from childhood legit dude i thought i was gay Mm. like straight up i thought that i was gay and i was just denying it the whole time and maybe that's why i was so unhappy was because i was not really realizing who i really was right and that like i was so scared that being gay would set me free i was so scared i was so confused around my sexual orientation dude Mm -hmm. um i thought maybe that was it too searching searching right uh Around all this time that I came back from Peru the second time, dude, I started to experiment with mushrooms and acid, right? Uh I started to extract DMT from the plant, the root bark. Uh, And and so really just trying to go in harder on this search for truth. But at the same time, never so miserable, never so confused. Uh, I started to... What year is this? Dude, this was like two years ago in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, I want to f- keep going, but I have to use the restroom one more time. Me bro. too, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Go first this time. Okay. Let me pause this book. Okay, where were we at? Where were we at? Oh, yeah, you're back home, depressed, sexual orientation, searching. Mm-hmm. Right. Yo, so... It, it it really got ugly dude and it really got dark yeah um i was i was so confused and willing to try anything to seek happiness and figure it out that i started to really take steps towards exploring um my sexual identity or orientation uh because that really drove me crazy dude mm-hmm. like uh, I I have so much uh, empathy for people who struggle with this mm-hmm. um, now because I I get it mm-hmm. I understand it. There's so much uh, shame and things around it, and I felt that you know I didn't want to be looked at as somebody who um, you know who was gay. Uh, it was just the way that we grew up in my family. It was just something to be made fun of and things like right, that. Right, right, right. Um, so I struggled so much so that I, dude, I can't tell you how crazy it drove me, Mm -hmm. um, that, 
the possibility that I could be. Mm-hmm. I, I know that I'm attracted to women. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, men can be attractive to me, right? Mm-hmm. And it just started to like really bother me. And so I started to like just explore that, mm-hmm. right? Um, never in a in a physical way, mm-hmm. but you know, the internet is, is plentiful with, sure. you know, ideas and pictures and videos. And um, I started to do things like that uh honestly dude and just all transparency i even set up like a dating account you know what i mean mm-hmm. to see what would happen you know right. with other men um and i was doing uh ayahuasca or dmt i was smoking dmt i was doing mushrooms i was like and, and i at the time lived in portland so it's, f- it's extremely progressive right and yeah. there's uh, a lot of support for the lgbtq community mm-hmm. there's um, progressive Christianity. There's just a lot of things like that going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's, it's all accepting sure. environment. So I felt like maybe this is what I'm supposed maybe there's to some do. answers here. Yeah. Right. And so this is after my second trip from ayahuasca and like, I've never been, I've never fought with my girlfriend so much. Um, and it just started to get so bad so bad um and she was in such a dark place too and uh we ended up going to utah for a road trip and um she and i were doing so bad that she ended up relapsing Mm -hmm. and i ended up relapsing off of alcohol and 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 weed right Mm -hmm. um not that i I guess I would have already relapsed with ayahuasca and mushrooms, but uh, those weren't like hardcore drugs, I guess, uh, or it didn't do to me what alcohol and weed did to me, right? So I didn't consider it a complete relapse, but so it was so bad that I just knew we needed to get away, right? And um, she was doing so bad that I needed to get her away. And so we went to Utah and um, thinking about it now, I'm just so amazed Hmm. so amazed but i felt the same draw in the same pool that i explained earlier when when god revealed to me that he was the alpha and the omega Mm -hmm. was the similar to very similar to what i experienced when we were driving to utah and out of nowhere i just told her i was like you know i feel like this attraction or this i like i want to try church or something like I want to go and see what that's about. Hmm. And at that point she was like willing to try whatever. Cause we were such in dark places, you know, such a dark place at the time. Mm-hmm. She said, yeah, I, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and, and so when we came back, we were still fighting all the time and, mm things that we did to each other were surfacing and it just a very toxic relationship. Um, and I started to get so bad that I started, I was having nightmares every night Hmm. that I was back in prison and I was never going to get out. And not only that, but the people that I hung around with at the time when I was really in prison, they now were aware that I was fake, you know, Hmm. so to speak. Uh, and that I didn't want to do anything to have to do anything with that lifestyle. 
that they wanted to kill me. And uh, so that was my nightmare every single night. And I would wake up and I'm miserable. I am dreading life, dude. And I would go to sleep and I'm scared to go to sleep because I know another nightmare is coming. Mercy. And it got like, that was like the apex of like my darkness right there. Um, And I started to think, how can I kill myself? You know, mm. like, how would I do it? Um, And I started to call the shaman and tell him all the things that I was going through, the dreams that I was having. And he's said, in you know, translating English, he said, my friend, you need more cleansing. <laughs> you need Get another more trip down here. Yeah, yeah, make it here as soon as you can and I'll help you. And I said, well, what about if I just send you $200? Could you buy ayahuasca and do a ceremony for me? And because uh, he did that while I was there. He did it for other people. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and, and, you know, that didn't help, but I just felt like, man, how this thing, you know, like, of course you got to pay the doctors and for medicine and things like that. But I just saw like the dark side of ayahuasca and like the, the business aspect of it, you know, Hmm. they, they, you know, use all the resources, like to the point where they're using juvenile ayahuasca vines to make ayahuasca because they need the money right and mm-hmm. it, the, the the demand is so high um it's such a big business now in peru um but there's just something about it that just didn't sit right with me as, right. as profound as the experiences that i had there was just something that wasn't right about it and i'm sure many people who live that lifestyle would argue uh and have you know different outlooks but so anyways uh when did you start i remember talking to justin about some of this back in the day maybe sometime in 2019 or in the and he was talking about a guy who cut his hair Mm -hmm. when did you start with with like meet him and does that come into the picture so Justin, I met Justin probably in the middle of my trip, my two trips, maybe before or uh, maybe after the first one, but he would come mm-hmm. uh, maybe like once a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would just ask me questions, right? And I would tell him about these ayahuasca experiences and um, he was just like, oh, okay, cool. You know, oh, interesting. And ask me more questions, you know. Uh-huh. And then when I came back the second time and I told him my experience about Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And how uh, Jesus is real, but so is Buddha, right? And mm-hmm. like all these things and just sharing my experience with him, um, he he would, he would just listen. And uh, occasionally he would ask me if I want to go have some lunch or something. And I thought like, well, this is interesting, you know, like, but sure. And I would tell him about my experiences and things like that. And he would just, just ask me questions and listen. Um, so we started to become closer friends when I started to ask more questions about Jesus because of my experience with ayahuasca. Did you know he was a, a Christian? Uh, I can't say that I do. I didn't recognize him as a Christian or... Um, he never pushed it on me. He never says, well, the Bible says this, 
No, he never said anything like that. I think maybe I he might have said that he was, but I didn't really hold too much weight to it. You know, I didn't really know and understand what that truly meant. Right. I just, if anything, I just, okay, you read the Bible and you live a certain way. Um, But he would actually become such a, a key part in my life um, after uh, my second trip and everything got dark, you know, and mm-hmm. having these nightmares. Considering taking your own life. Yeah. Uh, and so I was having these nightmares every night up until one day, dude. One day I had a dream uh-huh. that... I was in this dark room and this little girl about seven years old, she was standing next to me and she looked up at me and so innocently dude. And just so like small and just fragile. She looks at me and she says, death is coming to you. So confidently dude Mm. freaked me out. And I said, what did you say? Death is coming to you. So nonchalantly. Right. And I got so scared in my dream that I grabbed her and I started shaking her. And I said, and I don't, I didn't believe this at the time, but I just said it as a line of defense. I didn't know what else to say in my dream, I guess. Yeah. But I said, nobody knows when death is coming except for God. Mm-hmm. And I shook her. And that was the end of my dream. And I woke up, dude, and I said, that's it, dude. Something has to change. I don't know what it is, but I was at the end of my rope so yeah. much, dude, that I could scream. After my girlfriend left to work, I went to the living room and I sat down on the couch and I closed my eyes and I went as so deep as I could, dude, and so honest and sincere with myself. I said, what is it that I'm missing? And it was like, I heard this voice inside and it said, it was my realization, my own voice and it said, I need a father. Right. Like I don't. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like I don't have a dad. I don't have a dad. And I felt like this empty thing that was revealed to me and that it was like, I need a dad. I need a father. So I grabbed my phone and I texted out of a complete state of vulnerability, bro. I texted my girlfriend's dad because he's the closest father figure that I have. Like my stepdad wasn't really much of a dad. Mm -hmm. And I texted him and I said, you know, I just really wish I had a dad. And just spilled out my emotions, you know? Mm -hmm. And he responded how I thought he would and how I hoped he would. And he said, I will be honored to play that role for you. You can count on me anytime. Mm. And it felt good. I felt his love kind of penetrate that void that I had. Mm -hmm. But it only went so far. Right. And it was like this back-to-back-to-back experience So it was like this simultaneous like realization, like back to back to back, dude, where like I needed the love of a father, but his love, although it was extremely appreciated and, and sincere and genuine, only could do so much for me. Hmm. And then it was like, no, I need my father, God. And I never considered to be God as father or like I didn't there was no relationship between the two that I was aware of it was just kind of this knowing 
all of a sudden that it was one and the same mm-hmm. and that I needed it. Right. And that was the answer. But I didn't quite know what that meant exactly. So it was just instinctual. I ran to my room and I knew that there was a picture of Jesus somewhere in my drawer because my aunt had died a year and a half prior to that. And there was a, oh, the phone. I think that's your phone. Yeah. It's, it's all good. So I knew that there was this picture in the drawer and uh, I ran to it and I, and I dug it out. And uh, next to my aunt's picture, there was Jesus, that a picture of Jesus that was next to it. And it was, you know, the mainstream Mexican Jesus with the <laughs> blonde hair, you know, and the light skin, mm-hmm. uh, the Spanish Jesus, European Jesus. And, uh, yo, I just, I, I, it was like, I knew that I was on the right track, but I was desperate. And it was just this crazy experience where it was my last resort. Mm-hmm. I propped it up on my dresser and I got on my knees and I put my hands up and I started to cry hmm. and I started talking out loud to Jesus. And the first thing that I said that I remember that I said is I feel so stupid right now. I feel so dumb that I'm talking to you, but I need you. Hmm. I can't do this anymore. And I said, if you're real, I want you. Hmm. And I cried and I cried for like 10 minutes. And in between I would say things. And the last thing that I said was, um, well, it's what I did is in my mind's eye, I literally visualized my heart opening up. And I said, make my heart your home. Hmm. <laughs> Whew. Makes me want to cry just talking about it, dude, because of what the implications of that really means, right? Like, and I cried. <clears throat> and uh, I I felt better after that. But at the time, dude, I wasn't fully convinced, right? Like, I chalked it up to just me crying and getting some emotional steam out. Yeah. And I went on with my day, right? But that night, dude, was the first night that I didn't have a nightmare. In fact, I had a dream that I was in prison, but I was being released from prison Mm. in my dream. I was not stuck. I was being freed from prison. And I woke up feeling so elated, bro. Are you kidding me? I finally don't have a nightmare. In fact, I'm being freed from this prison, dude. Day two comes... And I have the same dream where I'm being freed from prison. I'm like, this is awesome, right? (laughs) Like, whoa. Oh, my gosh. Day three, I have a dream that I'm in prison again. But this time, I'm surrounded by this situation where death was was very imminent. Uh And it was very, very close to me so much that somebody next to me died. Uh But... I get called out from a higher authority, bro, telling me it's time 
to come home. (sighs) And so I walk out of the gates and I hear the voice telling me the same voice, right? That I heard before, follow this path, follow the word. And at that time, bro, I didn't know anything about scripture, what the word meant or anything like that. But I did know somebody who did, apparently, to answer your previous question, I I did have some kind of idea that Justin knew Mm -hmm. things about Jesus. I didn't really know that he was that far into it. He had a whole (laughs) YouTube channel and things like that, you know, and like, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, he was into it. Yeah. So I called him and I said, hey, man, I had this dream. And and he started to just kind of share with me what the word meant. Um, and so that's what really kind of sparked our, uh, our friendship, right. Where we just started to talk back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was being released from prison and I felt so good. And, uh, oh man. So a week later, mm-hmm. I know that I'm not having nightmares anymore. And all I know is that it came after I prayed to Jesus and sincerely opened my heart to him. Mm -hmm. And I thought, something's here. I want more. I'm going to seek more. Earnestly, I just, I went down the YouTube rabbit hole of Jesus videos, right? (laughs) And I ran across a messianic Jew. Uh, I didn't know that Jews didn't like Jesus, but now there's this wave of of Jews who are accepting Christ, Jesus as their Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. So I watched this video and he was talking about how Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and why you fast and how you fast. And like, it wasn't really particularly like clear how to fast, but you just, it's not one set way, right? Is what he was saying. But praying is important and um, you fast and pray and all this and that. So I said, well, I want to try this thing right? I mm-hmm. want to perform this act to try to get closer to God. So I committed to fasting and I fasted for 24 hours. And uh, 24 hours goes by and my son says he's hungry. Mm-hmm. So I start making him a turkey sandwich. And I'm thinking to myself, like, hey, it's been 24 hours, you know, I can, I think I'm good now, right? Like, that should be good enough. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll feel something or have this experience, or maybe I'll get uh, one step closer to having this confirmation of about God or who God is. It was like, and so I was, as I was making my sandwich, something came over me. It was like something like call it Holy spirit, let's say, right. Or God or whatever, however you want to call it. I didn't know what it at the time, I, but I felt something stop me. And tell me, reveal to me that it wasn't just about the performance, right? Mm. Like the act of fasting. It was about prayer, right? Mm. And it was just like realization, like, oh my gosh, I ha- this is what I need to do. I need to go pray. Mm. So I go into my room. I put the sandwich away, you know, to be continued. And I was like, I went to my room and I said, got on my knees and I said, God, I'm here again. I don't know what am I doing. I don't know if you want me to do this thing. Like, 
uh, an act of works, mm-hmm. right? An act yeah. of works. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I'm hungry for food right now, God, but I'm hungry for you even more. Hmm. Bro, the things that came out of my mouth that I could not, like, the things you can recognize, that's the lingo that we speak out of the complete pursuit and sincere uh, seeking of God is is these things that I'm speaking that I said, right? And right. Like, I'm hungry for food, but I'm hungry for you more. Come on. Like, it sounds like something you would hear in Psalms or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that wasn't me, bro. I mean, I mean, it was me, but it just was so unfamiliar for me to speak like that. Right. And I said, if you're real, just give me an answer. And I closed, I ended the prayer. And I went to sleep. And that morning, bro, I was rocked with a vision that was so fierce and so powerful and so just authoritative that it scared me up out of my sleep, bro. Like somebody slapped me up out of my sleep. I jumped up, literally jumped up out of bed, scared. And what I saw was this flash, just this flash of uh, light. It wasn't like extremely long, but it was so quick. It was like, I don't know if you've ever been punched in the face or in the eye, dude, but (laughs) when you get hit, like there's this like flash that you kind of see really quick and I felt like that. And when I jumped up, his voice echoed in my mind over and over like a, a ripple that slowly disappeared. And he said, Anaya, this is what you will name your daughter. And it was so intense, bro. I woke my girlfriend up and I said, I think God just spoke to me and told me to name my daughter Anaya and she said oh that's beautiful she goes back to sleep (laughs) and doesn't even remember anything the next when she woke up and Mm -hmm. later I told her about it and she's like oh I don't remember and uh bro the next day I'm at the barbershop I'm on my the bench taking a break my mom texts me and she says your uncle Rudy just died. And I was like, what? Wow. Like, that's crazy. How? how? And I'm just sitting there thinking about the dichotomy of life and death, Mm -hmm. right? Like, what is this thing, dude? Mm -hmm. And then out of nowhere, I just remember my vision. Anaya, this is what you will name your daughter. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow. Well, let me see if that means anything. So I take out my phone and I don't know anybody by this name, dude. I don't know anybody by this name. I don't know. I've never heard of it. You think you've heard of all kinds of girl names, right? Mm -hmm. But Anaya? Mm -hmm. I've never heard of it before. Right. So I look it up in the old Google machine. I typed it in Anaya. And the definition, sure as heck, bro, came up. It said, Anaya is derived from the Hebrew language, which translates into God has answered. Bro. Dang. I, it gives me goosebumps talking about it right now. I just asked God to give me an answer. I have this vision in which he, dire- he directs me to name my daughter Anaya. I have answered you. Are you kidding me, bro? Like, (laughs) what the heck, dude? I stared at my phone in such disbelief, bro. I felt like I had won the lottery. 
I felt like this only happens in movies. This happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. I've cried out to God so many times in my despair and my trauma and my misery, and I've never received an answer. But when I was sincerely ready to change, bro, in such a position where I was willing to just do anything, and I opened my heart to Jesus, bro, he answered me. And it was so shocking, bro. I had to, I looked around. I said, I need to be by myself. I went to the bathroom and I read it again. God has answered. It was like the realization of, it was a confirmation. I fell to my knees and I started to weep uncontrollably, bro. I, my face was planted on the dirty floor of the bathroom in the barbershop, bro. I was weeping so hard because I knew it all like it was just so apparent and evident now that God is real and not only is he real but I experienced the sincere connection between me and God like the communication was was I experienced it and I as I was crying I felt the presence bro of God in the bathroom so much so the best way that I can explain it is that I was surrounded by this just like light. Everything was white around me. And I felt I maybe it was the Holy Spirit just swirling around, dude. And just the presence of God was in the bathroom, just me and God. And I was on my knees and I started, I felt his love. His love was so unconditional, bro. And so righteous and so holy. His whole presence was just everything. I felt shame. And I felt almost like condemnation. But it wasn't because of him that he was making me feel that. At not one point did I ever feel like he pointed the finger at me and said, shame on you. It was more of like this awareness that was activated in his presence that you cannot help but feel how unholy and unrighteous and like the things that I've done in the past, bro, compared to his righteousness is the, is what made me feel so guilty and shamed of myself and like the things that I've done. I literally saw this, I had, it was like this vision, this experience all in one, dude, like this happening, this, this filing cabinet, this black filing cabinet flew in front of me, bro and a record of all the things that I've done, all the things that he had on me. Kind of like when the FBI got me and they said, we have all these things on you and now you're being prosecuted for it, right? Mm -hmm. But the things that I have done in the presence of God is so much more, dude, like he knows everything. And I literally felt so guilty in front of his righteousness, his majesty, I cried and I said, how could you still love me still? How could you still love me after all of the things that I've done? And what he said to me back was, I have never left you. (sighs) (laughs) I have never left you. Bro, are you kidding me? Like, it was like... This is pales in comparison, but let me let me just paint the picture of how I felt when in the Lion King when they raise Simba up 
and in front of the whole pride, and every knee bows, and every tongue confesses that he is the majesty of the land. Bro, I felt that, but on like the most deepest and realest level that you could feel in the presence of God. Every ounce of my being could not help but just bow in his presence. I felt like I was at his feet. I saw his feet. Like, I, it was like he was sitting down. I didn't know at the time, but now I know that, you know, they talk about him sitting on his throne, mm-hmm. right? He was sitting down and I was at his feet, bro. And I felt his love. Not even my mom has ever made me feel that loved. I don't even love my son that much. <laughs> I, it's, and at the time, I could not, I didn't know any of these things that I was experiencing correlated to scripture. The vision of him telling me to name my daughter something. I saw it when Joseph, right, or um, John the baptizer, uh, Jesus, right? Like people are getting directed from a higher authority to name their children a certain name. Mm. This happened to me. When I was in the presence of God, I felt so unworthy. Come to find out, Peter felt the same way. He said, depart from me. I'm not even worthy to take the sandals off of your feet. I felt that. And in that bathroom, bro, is when I changed. Like I was, I was different when I walked out. I proclaimed myself his. I said, I'm yours. Jesus, I am yours. I will follow you. I will serve you for the rest of my life. I'm yours. And I walked out of the bathroom completely just washed and healed, you know? And so, and it was so profound, dude. Um, I could not stop talking about it. And you can have a seat if you want to, brother. Yeah, feel free to grab a drink if you'd like to. Yeah, it's all on the house. Now you're good. Um, and I couldn't stop talking about it. I talked about it so much that my mom thought I was going crazy. She saw Jesus when she came back from Peru mm-hmm. and she was sick. Like she thought she was going to die. She was so scared. But uh, she didn't really know what to do with that. So now here I am talking about it, right? And I'm just like so talking about it so much. She admits now that she thought that she was worried about me. <laughs> she thought I was going crazy. As we wrap this thing up, let me ask you two questions. Mm-hmm. Question number one, the dream about the snake. Mm-hmm. What did it mean now? That was the death of the old me and me being reborn in the spirit. In the form, like, I mean, these birds, what do they represent? What is, a, I mean, what was Holy Spirit depicted as a dove when he hovered over Jesus or when the Holy Spirit came to Jesus in the form mm-hmm. of a dove? Um, what does a snake represent? You know, mm-hmm. is they it all makes so much sense now. And the tree, mm-hmm. you know, I I mean, tree of life or 
something that will bear fruit, right. you know. And then this, this death to life moment in the bathroom. How did you know you were loved? What was it that you're just like, I know I'm loved in a way that I don't love anybody or I've never been loved before? It was, it was when I realized that even after everything I've done, I wasn't being held to that. Like I was being forgiven, unconditional love. Like it was a feeling of love and acceptance and, and, and pure just grace, mercy. Um, it's hard to explain that feeling, but it was just every ounce of my being recognized that feeling to be love. And that's just the best way that I can explain it. It was just such a powerful experience. Like God is love. Like I was in his presence. I was in the presence of love. I was in the midst of love, totally forgiving me for everything that I've done. And still, and it reassured me that, no, I've been with you the whole time. And it was just, it was wild, man. I don't know if you'll have time to, because that's just like the beginning, right, of it. I don't know no, if you'll have that's, time, but like. This is a good place to end it. Yeah. Because it's just so powerful. But yeah, we'll have to catch up at a different time to get. Absolutely, I know there's man. more because it's just more life that has come from this oh, thing. Absolutely, yeah. But bro, your story is, it's just God is love, man. Yeah. And it's for everybody no matter what you've done. I mean, when when the heart really is sincere and open to receiving it, it is just a complete reality change. And just, it's life. I've never felt so much joy, so much. It's everything. When Jesus says, "If you, whoever drinks of my water will never thirst again. Are you kidding me, bro? That's exactly how I feel that it springs out of me like, and it never ends. It never ends. And how could it be that I've ingested substances? I've went to counseling. I've done everything that you can think of. But when it came to just accepting the love and the spirit of God, it changed everything. Like, it's so crazy. (laughs) So it's amazing. But that's it, man. Love it, brother. Love you, man. Love, you Love too, your story, bro. bro. Absolutely. It was, it was a pleasure meeting you. Yeah. go shoot. Can't stop till we make it to the moon. It's too late, can stop it. It's a boom. No, I cannot wait till you approve. I got people with me on the other side. Spirit on me too bright. I see they trying to ride. Coming out for the night. Yeah, it's that come alive. Coming out for the fight. Yeah, we stay alive. We stay alive. Hey. Hey, put your hands down Hey, we ain't coming questions, yeah, we been down Creed, I am Adonis, wash the hands now Went from thinking broke to living rich now Hey, busting with the twos, you watch me slide now Hey, she look kinda bougie and she bad now Hey, mama think I made it easy, proud now Hey, hey
looking at me, what do you see? Shoot the shot, KOD, only talk, holy things. I'm a prince, that's Rakim. That's Rakim. 23, check the rings, FOG on my feet, on my soul. Jesus Christ, set me free, son. Free. Only motivation on me now is heavenly. A lot of people trying to drain me of this energy. I talked to God, told me people's not my enemies. I'm cutting ties with the spirits trying to play with me. Go shoot. Can't stop till we make it to the moon. It's too late, can stop it, it's a boom. No, I can't, I wait till you approve. I got people with me on the other side. Spirit on me too bright, I see they tryna ride. Coming out for the night, yeah, it's that come alive. Coming out for the fight, yeah, we stay alive. We stay alive, ayy. Hey.